Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. A couple quick bits of news one i just finished putting the album together the uh, my production company finished doing all the editing and the cover art and stuff like that and passing notes back and forth and i'm real excited about it it's going to be called my big break it's coming out on may 26th which is either in your future your past or your present depending on when you're listening to this and either way you should be excited and check it out when it's out or get it now if it's already out and um it's it's my it's my best bit of stand up yet as far as i'm concerned um i i talk a lot about breaking my feet uh which was therapeutic and it's coming out about the year anniversary of me breaking my feet so good times and Another thing, if you guys could write me a review on iTunes and give it an old five-star rating, that's helpful. Once there's a hundred ratings, I'm going to release a bonus episode. Once there's a hundred written reviews, I'm going to release another bonus episode. So, if you go on there and write 
and rate the podcast, then you will be doing two things in that little amount of time that will add to you getting two full extra episodes of the Here We Are podcast that was hours and hours and hours of work for me that I had to do. And so if you could just quick just sneak in there and just hit that old five-star button, it would help me out tremendously. Thank you guys for listening, and now it's time for Ant Talk. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I just got into um, to. Uh, Phoenix, well, Scottsdale, um, last night I drove in from L.A. and I have a whole bunch of interviews lined up at Arizona State University, so I'm very excited. And um, and my first guest is Jennifer Fuel, who is the professor here who studies social organization and how and why uh, individuals cooperate which is a um, very interesting and complex question. So I'm very excited to get into it. Thank you for coming on, Jennifer. And thank you for showing me your ant lab already. Yeah. I, uh, so far, um, the, I think the most interesting thing for the listeners to know, uh, since everyone has to deal with ants, is that we don't have to worry about ants um, being dirty, filthy creatures. We spend a lot of time cleaning ants and worrying about them getting in our food and everything but they're you're you're informing me that they're actually quite sterile well they're not so much sterile but they're very clean they're very into cleaning themselves and cleaning each other they're good housekeepers people say the same thing about cats though and i still don't want to kiss their yeah i wouldn't kiss a cat (laughs) i'd much rather an ant licked me than a cat (laughs) and and why is it important for these uh, these ants to be so OCD? Um, it's important because they live in the soil, and the soil is dirty. They have to keep fungus away from their colony. They have to um, keep bacteria away. They can't you know, have like their babies being attacked by fungus uh, while they're growing, so they're extremely meticulous about being clean. They actually have special glands, the metal plural gland that they use to clean themselves and clean the walls so uh they're they're good how they really are good housekeepers Hmm. and i don't have anything against cats i just want to interject that (laughs) people are gonna be writing in i can't believe your guests hate cats yeah what's this with cats (laughs) um no we aren't hating on cats everybody um so you walked me through a whole hall of of labs that are specifically dedicated to cooperation and understanding cooperation from various fields and different aspects from from uh, the evolution of of the genes what happened way back in our past to what happened a moment ago with the um uh the neurological underpinnings of of cooperation right and kind of everything in between and you study Ants, which is, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of species out there that are big into the whole cooperation um, thing. So, so why, why are ants 
Um, I guess there's a couple different ways of asking this question. Why do ants cooperate so much? And why don't other species, why aren't other species cooperating more? Oh, wow. That's a big question. It is a big question. It is a big question because all ants are highly cooperative in that all ants are what we call eusocial, which is a system of cooperation where a few individuals reproduce and everyone else helps them reproduce. And it's incredibly unusual because really one of the uh, goals of life is to reproduce. So why would you give up your own reproduction to help somebody else? Um, yeah, I don't just go out and care for other people's children. children. I'm out trying to make babies of my own. <laughs> yeah, you're male, so that makes sense. <laughs> but uh, so, so the social insects are, are really interesting because they've been so successful. You see social insects everywhere, right? They, someone right. has estimated that there's a, as much ant biomass as there is human biomass on the planet. But in general, this kind of highly social system is rare, and it's probably because of this tension between individuals wanting to reproduce themselves and the benefits that you can get as a society if you all cooperate together. So there's sort of this balance of what is the important unit? Is it, is it the group as a whole or is it the individual? It's a big question in social behavior and actually in evolutionary theory generally. Yeah, because I got all these um, selfish selfish genes that I guess are working together to make me as an individual organism, but um, but I don't necessarily care, uh, or my genes shouldn't necessarily care, uh, or using the term care loosely, I guess, um, but uh, they shouldn't have happened to give me the inclination to care about other people's genes as much as... The, my own genes, but um, uh, but um, the exception being my my parents should care about me because I have a whole bunch of their genes in me, and I should I'm sure, care yeah. half as much about my siblings. Or it doesn't work the other like if I hate myself, should I care? <laughs> should I hate my siblings half a, half as much, and then hate my cousins an eighth as much as myself? Well, if you really <laughs> hate yourself funny. and you think they have really good genes, maybe you should just help them more. But um, Yeah, that's one way of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, an interesting thing about the ant colony, keep in mind, because you mentioned your parents and your sisters and brothers, is that it is a family, right? It's a, it's, a fam- it's a really large family group, and it competes with other family groups. And so the individuals in that colony are actually helping themselves indirectly by helping their sisters or helping their mother produce other, other offspring. So that's one way to think about it, right? So can you explain that again, the, the family dynamic of ant colonies? The family dynamic of ant colonies um, is such that you have an individual queen. She's a female, and she's reproductive. And she goes out and she mates with a male, or she might mate with multiple males, um, depending. She comes back and she digs a nest, and she produces Offspring. She produces a bunch of babies, and those bunch of babies turn into workers. Those workers are sterile. They're all female. They all help their mother make more of them until the colony is a good size and it can compete with other colonies and it's stable. And then at that point, those workers help their mother make new queens. And then they go out and they reproduce and they start colonies. So it's almost as if the colony is an organism, right, or an individual for sure, 
that is competing with other individuals and is reproducing, making offspring colonies. And that, that's sort of the way to think about a social insect colony, right? Mm. So you have the individuals at the level of the workers, but you also have the individual at the level of the group. So the group is very important to them. And, and actually, if you look across animal societies, you can look at societies where the individual is the most important thing, which is most animals, right? And then you get into social groups, and you can start to see this shift between the individual being important, but the group also being important. For example, the social carnivores, like wild dog packs, where they're all related to each other, and they're highly cooperative, and they they work as a team, but still there's some tension between who's going to reproduce, right, to something like the social insect colony, where it's really all about the colony. It's all about helping that one individual, the queen, reproduce. Hmm. And, and humans are weird, because we don't seem to fit well into any of these categories. We're all selfish. We're all interested in ourselves, but we also can't live without other individuals, right? We wouldn't survive alone in the wilderness. Right? You know, any post-apocalyptic movie will tell you that. <laughs> yeah. It does not go well for us, right? So, right? so we sort of have this tension also between wanting to do what's best for us, but also having drive to to help other individuals, not just our family groups, but also our communities also. So I find humans fascinating that way because they're not quite social insects and they're not quite wild dogs and they're definitely not uh, you know, a species where nobody cares about anybody else. So when I, call, when I refer to my family as the wolf pack, I'm inaccurate in that. Even though my brother and I, we help each other take down buffalo and whatnot once uh, in a while. Yeah. But I usually take the majority of the mating opportunities so uh, we're a little bit like wolves in i that think way. you sound more like hyenas <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more competitive although if you're hyenas you'd all be female right and because the females are dominant in the uh, hyena yeah, pack. yeah of course and <laughs> yeah. it would be hard to tell our genitalia apart um, yeah we could another. go there that <laughs> <laughs> the the you know, the byproduct of aggression in hyenas is an interesting genitalia, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, a large, it is a clitoris, right? Just it's a, a it's a enlarged clitoris that they call a pseudo-penis because it's about seven inches long and it looks just like a penis. The only, well, not the only difference, but a major difference between the pseudo-penis and a regular penis is that you don't give birth through a regular penis, whereas female hyenas have to give birth through ah. that. <laughs> which is probably very painful and also, uh, you know, it's not very safe either. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think so. And no wonder they're so angry. Um, I would take charge, too, if I had to give birth through my penis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's kind of chicken and egg, because if you take charge, you get to give birth through your penis. Right, if right. You're, oh, your pseudo-penis, sorry. But, right. Yeah, because only the dominants reproduce. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that like you really have to be um, a real hyena expert, is my understanding. to even to, and, and even if you're an expert, you really have to get a real good look at these to tell which one's male and which one's female. That's true. They, they can identify them individually, and once they know if they're male or female, then they know, right? But uh, just looking out there, you can't just say, oh, that's a male or that's a female based on their uh, genitalia. So it's interesting the transition from most everything starting off as kind of uh, this individual out for themselves a little bit, and then, and then some of these species have moved into cooperation 
in various ways. I mean, I guess ants is a completely different situation than humans and and wolves. But is there how how did this start? How did this process start in our evolutionary history? Um, for humans or for ants or um, both? Both. Uh, well. Let, let's do ants, since I guess that's your yeah of yeah. We, we might want to. I might make a mistake with humans, but with ants, it started probably as a family group. So, and ants actually are related to wasps. So, it probably was a wasp type ancestor that um, had a offspring that, instead of dispersing, stayed at home and helped the um, mother take care of their young. And that that was that actually worked out pretty well, because they're highly related to their their sisters, and um, they probably have a hard time finding you know sites to disperse to. So you get this sort of balance of ecological conditions and um, the indirect effects of taking care of your siblings, and it worked, hmm. and uh, it worked really well for the ants. They moved from being from flying to going down in the ground. And as soon as they went down into the ground, they probably could last longer as a colony because they're buffered from, from the winter. And um, they now could store food, and it's kind of a nice place, and we all want to hang out here, and so we don't disperse, and, well, we're all related, so that, you know, the, um, the, this sort of genetically-based trait is moving forward in the next generation, and they're, and they're basically now a powerful force, right? They have this fortress, which is their underground nest, and they can defend themselves from other ants and from, you know, other, from predators, and they can take over food sources. So now I'm thinking Game of Thrones here a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they're, they're doing really well. It works. So that's, I mean, that's always the answer, right? Well, and, you're, you're now my new favorite guest for making a Game of Thrones The first Game of Thrones <laughs> reference, yeah. By the way. Well, it's, it's funny because humans have been, uh, it, we always, um, everyone wants to, uh, you're a kid and you dream of being Superman or having the ability to fly or what it would be like to be a bird and we build these airplanes and we have NASA and everything but we should be going underground that's where it's at it seems that's it building those bunkers that's that's it's yeah nice and safe <laughs> build those underground colonies we should be mole people is what we should be striving for, yeah perhaps. it lacks windows you know that right <laughs> so there's not the sunshine so where's pros and cons yeah what's the average lifespan of an ant um the average lifespan depends on the ant so the queen actually can live up to like 20 or 30 years in some of these really? colonies yeah so if you have a I would have guessed like Two years. Yeah, yeah, I know, Just and you'd be wrong. The, I would be super. <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So the the queen lives a really long time, and the workers, uh, their lifespan depends on whether they're born in the summer or the winter, around here anyway. So because we're in a temperate environment, we have winter and summer, right? So it's a little bit different for the tropics. But if they're born towards the winter, they're going to basically be underground most of the time, and there's not a lot of stresses, and they will live six months to a year. Um, if they're born in the summer, they're going to eventually become foragers, and those are the ants that really um, suffer the most danger, right? They go out. It's, we live in Arizona. It's hot. They get desiccated in the sun. There's spiders out there that want to eat them, and uh, that happens quite a lot. And so, Or they get lost, and they can't find their way home. And so their lifespan, once they start foraging, is about a couple of weeks. 
how are they finding their way around in the first place? Um, and and how how are they? Uh, I mean, I I have one little. I make some tea. I drop one little uh, spot of honey on the counter, and they've got and it. Next thing I know, there's a thousand ants that have all somehow communicated and are invading my uh, my kitchen. Yeah, this is a, a particularly complex question for me because I cannot find my way anywhere. I think I have like a little piece of magnetite in my head or something where I always go the wrong direction. So so almost 80% of the time, I want to go the direction that's the opposite of the correct direction. So I look at ants and it's unfathomable. I can't even say the word unfathomable to me, right? How they do it, right? But um, they have a Maybe lot of... Maybe they, do they just use Google Maps? <laughs> they don't use they... Google Maps. I don't think they're, they're, Waves, their antennae maybe? are big enough really to trigger <laughs> Google Maps. But they... Um, they use pheromonal trails and they use uh, all kinds of um, different kinds of uh, mechanisms to know where they are. So they actually can figure out direction. So they know north, south, east, and west. They use landmark cues. So as soon as they go to um, a spot once, they immediately me- memorize it and they can use landmarks to get back there. And then to get the other ants there, they use these pheromonal trails where they take their abdomen and they just press it against the ground and they put a chemical odor trail down and the others follow it. So you'll see ants following these odor trails. And if they're in your kitchen and they're all in a line and they're going towards your sugar, they're using a pheromonal trail and you can play with them if you want by wiping it out and watching them get all crazy, not knowing where they are, but they'll eventually find it and get back to business. Yeah, It's kind of fun to do. So when they... So when they find something good, are they putting out more of this signal then? Or, or how, how is that trail working? Or is it just m- that more ants are um, you know, finding this thing and then making a beeline back, and so, and so the pheromone path is, is getting stronger just because more are stumbling upon it? Or is it, can an individual ant put out more of a f- signal? It's, it's probably the second. It's probably a yes, I mark it, no, I don't mark it. And, mm. But you do get this, this interesting amplifying effect, right? So you, you, you have an ant, and she's got to choose where to go. And one path has some pheromone on it already, and the other one doesn't. So she's more likely to take that path. If that path leads to food and, and she gets something, then she's going to pheromone mark it when she comes back. And then the next ant comes, and now there's two pheromone markings, you know, on one side versus the other. So she's more likely to take that path. So you get this amplification effect where everybody's now going down the same road. They've done it really Not cool. Not big Robert Frost fans. Not big Robert, no, (laughs) no, definitely not. Yes, that was him. Yeah, two paths diverged in the. Yeah, yep. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to remember that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, he took the one less traveled. The ant does not. Right. right? They take the one more traveled, and um, uh, they'll do that until they exhaust that resource. Right. And then they will just go not marking pheromone trails. Somebody else will discover something somewhere else. And now all of a sudden there's a new trail and they'll take off in that direction too. Okay. So they follow this trail to 
um, it, it, there, there's been a whole bunch of different ants putting a, a yes, go this way. Yeah. Um, and, and they follow this trail and then they show up and it's all gone. Nothing's there. Then what happens next? They just turn they around. They just or? turn around and come back home, right? There's a lot uh, of them. So there's a lot of redundancy. So other ants are out looking for other food sources while this is happening. So there are some that are taking the road less traveled. And um, so what happens is a pheromone doesn't last forever, right? It decays over mm-hmm. time. And so this path disappears, slowly disappears, and individuals stop taking that path. And already there's fresh markings going to another path. So they'll go there and they'll go to the new food resource. So there's a way for it to, for them to all get to, the, to a really good food source right away and, and dominate it against other animals that may want it also. But there's also a way for them to be flexible because you can't just all go in one direction all the time, obviously. That, everybody would end up in one place and that would be the end of that. So they, they have mechanisms to, to change their behavior as, as needed. Hmm. So if you want to get rid of ants, you, you get rid of the path or you, you put the traps out? and The traps get, are good or you could put a really good sugar source by your neighbor. That's what I was thinking. That's what you were I thinking. Was, I, was, I could I, tell. I was like, how do I redirect? I didn't want to say it, but I was like, yeah. I have some neighbors that I don't care for. How do yeah. I get my hands on some pheromones and redirect them toward You didn't toward have to say place. it. You were giving nonverbal cues. You were going, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just assumed that because I'm a comedian, I'm a bad person. It's a fair, it's a fair assumption to make. A lot of people assume the same, and they're usually right. Yeah, I think it was more the comments of you and your brother <laughs> taking right, down right, a right. buffalo and you mating. Right, <laughs> judging me as an individual rather than making broad sweeping generalizations yeah. about comedians. That's thoughtful. Um, so, uh, what about so? The, ampli- uh, the amplification is interesting because you you do some stuff with bee communication as well, right? Or no, I'm a, uh, well, I have worked on bees, but I mostly work on ants right now. Because bees do, uh, I, I'm I'm just familiar with um, a little bit of how. Uh, so the, a bee finds a supply. And my understanding is it goes back to a hive and it does this funky little dance. It does the waggle dance. Yeah. It does like a certain number of loops for distance and then this way for this direction or whatever. And uh, I I like the ways that they tested that. I I couldn't tell you who the person was that did it, but they like turned the beehive like they had. They had a bee go and get a rich source and then the bee comes back. And goes in and it's doing its dance and everything. And as it's doing its dance, the the beehive's on a swivel and they turn it um, 180 degrees or whatever. And then all the bees go flying out the direction that they should be going. Uh, not you know the, right the, yeah. the opposite direction right, of yeah, the source right. because they were following the directions of the bee, not realizing that it swiveled. And then there was something um, really interesting. Uh, too, that I heard that that if you you could put like a source out in like bees have uh, some idea of like they sort of have a map in their head a little bit of of the lay of the land and their local surroundings and so if if you take some bees out into like the middle of a lake with and give them some great source of food and then let them go back and then they they'll make a beeline yeah uh, well they'll they'll try well they'll try to explain 
uh, hey, there's all this great stuff over this way, but because the bees know that there's a lake there, they'll go, hey, this guy doesn't know what, he must have gone crazy because there's nothing out in the middle of that lake for us, and they actually won't go and act on Um, I think the same thing happens in ants. Yeah, that there's this idea that once you've been out there, that you have a memory of of what the environment is like. So you use these cues that or landmarks and and you know not to go here or not to go there. And so they'll change their behavior. They won't they won't take the information that the other individual gives them as, you know, gold standard (laughs) once they've been out there and they'll they'll make their own decision. Yeah. Um, and it was also really interesting. You're explaining to me and you gave me a brief tour of, of the ant lab and you were explaining that, that, um, they kind of figure out how many, how many resources and what kinds of resources they need before they go out foraging. Yeah. So, I mean, it's part of them being part of a whole community, right? The the forager isn't actually collecting food for herself. She's probably not even going to eat the food that she brings back. So the so she decides what to get based on what the colony needs and what the colony needs is often built around the brood which is the babies and what they need to eat and what they have already stored. So foragers will make decisions on what for example, seed foragers will make decisions on what seed is better based on uh, the quality of the seed that they they encounter because they taste them. Oh, this tastes better than that. But also what they already have. So if they already have a bunch of this in the larder, they might go get something else. So they're actually tracking what's in the colony, um, paying attention to it. It's kind of interesting because we think of it as a sort of a, a colony memory or a, a colony information source right or an information center for them so it's not just individuals making decisions it's the group making a decision through those individuals so that they basically read what the colony needs hmm and you you've done some stuff with um some division of labor too right with with ants like is is there are there different tasks that other yeah yeah actually division of labor is what i mostly work on so um yeah so in a colony of ants or bees or actually in any group even if it's you and your brother hunting buffalo right you'll see the individuals (laughs) we do quite do you because that's interesting (laughs) there aren't that many buffalo out there but (laughs) yeah and by hand too oh well that's really interesting i I have to say i'm impressed usually just headlocks yeah oh have you ever actually caught one or (laughs) so far we haven't probably (laughs) we've been stampeded a few times so it was a good bonding experience Well, you can always hope, you know, hope is really important. I'm not sure ants have hope, but people do. So, you know, we'll go with that. Anyway, so yeah, so in any group, if there's multiple tasks that need to be performed, right, different individuals seem to divide it up so that they do, so different individuals perform different tasks. And that's what division of labor is. It's a degree to which different individuals specialize on different tasks. So in an ant colony, there's a bunch of different things that they have to do. You have to excavate the colony. You have to keep it clean. We've already discussed that. You have to take out the trash. You have to process the food. You have to feed the babies. You have to go out and get the food, right? You have to take care of the queen. And the ultimate in division of labor, of course, in a social insect colony is, is that you have to produce the babies, and only one individual does that. That's the queen. So that's called reproductive division of labor. But beyond that, all these other chores that have to be done, right, have to be divided up among individuals. And so it's kind of interesting to ask, well, how does that 
happen because they don't have like an org chart. They don't have, you know, a, a chore list. This is what you have to do today. They just do it sort of emergently um, based on what every individual encounters and what their propensity is to perform a task. So, so um, it's sort of based on this idea of a response threshold that everybody has this point at which they notice a task needs to be done. Does that make sense? So, so you have a set point where you'll notice that something needs to be done, and I'll have a set point, and they might yeah. be different from each other. Like when um, uh, my my car, once I can like no longer get into my car, I know it's time to clean it. But yes. when like my yeah. ex girlfriend or something would get in the car, and there's like a cup on the ground, that means it's time to clean it. That's, that's a really good example. That's not my threshold. No, that's right. And the X might be key, critical here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, the same thing happens. We're learning in, a lot about my character as yeah, well as team yeah. building and actually, all in the same episode. It's funny because I call it the dishwasher model, which <laughs> because the way to envision it is imagine that you have a bunch of people and they're roommates and they all live together in a house, right? I'm I'm in that situation all right. due to the X. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in a roommate situation currently. So so okay, so one one chore that you get increased stimulus for right is the dishes because you keep using dishes you put them in the sink and you use dishes and you put them in the sink and so that that sink of dishes is like a stimulus and you have a response threshold i swear that everybody has a response threshold for this by the way that they notice that there are dishes in the sink right and yours might not be till they're falling out of the sink Mine's not until all of the ants have taken over, yeah. cleaned the dishes for me. And then I'm like, okay, now right. it's time. But imagine your girlfriend who cannot, which actually this is like a relationship thing for me too, right. because my husband cannot stand to have dishes in the sink. He absolutely can't stand to have dishes in the sink. So if there's five dishes, he washes them, right? Now, if my threshold or your threshold is a, is a sink full of dishes and his is five dishes, what's going to happen? He's going to wash the dishes as soon as there's five, right? And so the stimulus level never hits your threshold. So it's not actually your fault that you're not doing the dishes. It's that person's fault because they're removing the stimulus from you. They basically become the specialist because they keep doing the, ch the task over and over again. And you would do the task. Keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. You would I, do it. Yeah. That's what I tell all my yeah. roommates. Yeah. But they're it, such specialists. That's what I tell them. Yeah, exactly. So they just have low thresholds. <laughs> so, so you can imagine now if you put a group of individuals together. So what's wrong with Dave? That's what I want to know. Dave's dirty in all the dishes. And then he's never. <laughs> I'm just making dumb jokes. Um. Well, well, you can you can imagine a situation where you have different individuals in the group, and they all have different thresholds for different things. So one's busy washing the dishes, right? right. So the other one has to vacuum, right? Somebody probably has a low threshold for cleaning the bathroom, and it's usually Got not the a chore chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone needs to give me a back massage. There's all these responsibilities. There's no, there's no chore chart here, right? It's emergent, <laughs> right? But what happens is that there's somebody who has a high threshold for everything, and they're sitting on the couch, right? So the couch potato actually emerges from this model, also, because they and it's not their uh, fault. They just have a high threshold for everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's. 
That's interesting. So yeah. I just have a really high threshold. I, I'm not lazy. I'm resilient. Well, we may define this as lazy, actually. <laughs> you may actually you may say, oh, look, he has a high threshold for everything. Let's just call that, quote unquote, lazy. Yeah, I, I just have a th- high threshold for letting everyone else do everything else yeah. for me. So in an ant colony, we get back to a functional unit, right? <laughs> in an ant colony... Um, I like that ants have their lives figured out so much better than I do. I mean, so much better. I guess I could say that about most species. Maybe we shouldn't use me as an example. <laughs> well, also, I think that there are a lot of lazy ants. If you look at an ant colony, maybe 40% of them aren't doing anything at any given time. So we do have this... I call those the smart ones. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, they would be smart if they were reproducing, ah, I see. but they're not, right? So if we go back to the ant colony, since the colony is the unit, right, of selection, the colony is what reproduces. Basically, um, the so selection acts on that colony. So you have um, mechanisms for individuals to choose tasks quickly or to move into different tasks as they get older, so that everything gets done in the colony. In your um, roommate group that's not the case and you may actually need a roommate agreement to sort of police yourselves but the colony doesn't need that because the colony has to function in order to survive and it comes from a history of colonies that functioned well so Hmm. does that make sense so 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 ants are just like i'm gonna do something they just have the instinct the drive to like i'm i'm either gonna start digging or i'm gonna haul this stuff out or something like that or go and forage for food or whatever and uh, okay, that guy's already doing that, uh, or this gal is already doing this, and so I'm going to go out and forage because they're already doing the digging and the hauling and whatever. Yeah, there's, there's actually a whole model called Foraging for Work, so there you go. That's based What's on ant college. Foraging for Work. Okay. Yeah, where ants, the idea is basically what you say, that ants go look for a task, and if the task's occupied, they find another task. And then once they're in that task, they sort of hold it for a while, and other individuals look, you know, come in and get moved to a different task, and everything sorts itself out, basically. Hmm. They do, they do have some other mechanisms, like, for example, um, they do different tasks as they get older. So, so they start out within, col- within colony tasks, and then the older workers are the ones that go out and forage, um, which is actually kind of a, uh, a horrible way to, to kill off your older workers, right? Because foraging is the more dangerous task. But those individuals um, have the lower lifespan, and they also have the higher... Uh, ability to map out the environment so those are the ones that go out and do the high-risk tasks the newly emerged workers are the ones that are going to stay and take care of the brood and things like that oh no so don't how go is that emerging it's uh, that's not an emergent component like i said that there there's a selection component on it so so given oh so there's a, like an actual uh, biological change that leads to an inclination yes uh, over over a life history yeah, exactly. So much like puberty or something like that in humans, and now you're right. into mating, and then you get older, and now you're into caring for your children. Parental care. Parental yeah. care. Right? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So you can you can actually put it into this model of response thresholds by saying that the threshold for doing that task, foraging, goes down as you get older, so that they're more likely to to be summoned to that task and pay attention to the need for that task. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let these young kids do the digging. 
Yes, yeah. Let the <laughs> <laughs> let the strong ants do the digging. <laughs> so you said that. So what again is the average lifespan of a regular ant? So it, it varies. So it varies with winter and summer. Yeah. So what are the... So if they're in the colony, their lifespan for a harvester ant, which is the ant species that I work mostly on, could be, you know, several months. Okay. Even a year. But if they go out and forage, then it's like two weeks. So it, this is the dangerous occupation. So, so how often are queens um, cranking out kids then? Queens are cranking out kids daily, so they can produce millions and millions of offspring over the lifespan of the colony. That's her job. She cranks out kids. Daily? How many a daily. day? I don't know how many a day. That's a good question, mostly because I look at them uh, early in the colony lifespan. So early in the colony lifespan, she's cranking out hmm, maybe 10 a day or something like that, I think. Maybe I'm exaggerating that, but yeah, she's just cranking out some amount every day. Wow. That's her job. Well, you it's not the best queen, job. It's like, yeah, it sounds real good. It's like, oh, you don't have to work, but if you're cranking out 10 kids a no, day, no right. thank you. I'll, right. I'll, I'll go take my chance at the spider and find yeah. some Yeah, having find given birth, food. I completely agree with you. I don't think <laughs> I would want to do that. Spider. Yeah, 10 a day. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I have two. Two yeah, is good. How old are they? One's 26 and one's 20. So oh, they have oh. successfully survived to adulthood. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a behavioral ecologist term. <laughs> no, they're doing well. Uh, oh, good. Uh, you, you still have a ways to go before they're going to send you off to forage. That's that's the good thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Although that, it is my preferred chore. <laughs> yeah, the foraging. Um, uh, so you said that they're mostly, when they're out foraging, they're getting food for the young. So what are, what are adult ants eating? Or do they just that's actually until they die? That, that's a good question because... Um, uh, if they are collecting nectar or something like that, an energy source, then they're eating it. But a lot of the protein-rich foods, they're not eating those. So the weight of the ant actually goes down steadily as she forages. She is, in a way, out there to forage and die, which sounds horrible, but that's her job at the end of her life to support the colony. So the forages don't eat very much. They really are picking their food based on what the colony needs, not what they need. Hmm. Now, it's a little different for bees versus ants because bees have to fly, and flying is really expensive, so they do need an uh, an energy source, and they use nectar as their energy source. And um, and you showed me some ants um, that had these big bellies full of. Um, oh yeah, the um, honeypot ants. Oh, yeah, yeah, honey yeah, ants. yeah. We have some honeypot ants in the lab and those are really interesting because there's a division of labor for you right so one individual becomes a specialist on holding the nectar this is their job is to to be a storage vessel for this you know nutrient source for the colony and once she starts doing it her abdomen expands she hooks on to the the ceiling of the colony and she hangs there and people people huh? ants feed her and she also feeds ants back because she's basically their refrigerator and she's holding their nectar and that's her job for the rest of her life 
That's just to stuff yourself full and then have people feed off of you. That may be appealing to you. Yeah. If you're looking for chores. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Just sit around <laughs> and eat and then yeah. regurgitate once in a while for people. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's a painful experience for them. They seem quite mellow. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to project on it too much. But yeah, that's a, it's a, I'll just say it's a vitally important job. Because it allows the colony to experience periods where there's no food out there and also store food when it's abundant. So this is sort of one of the beauties of a social insect colony is that they're buffered, right, from environmental variation. It sort of goes back to humans, too, that we have developed ways to store food and to share food with each other. And that allows us to survive dearth periods or, you know, for you, if you don't, you, you're not successful with the buffalo, which... I understand you have not so been far, very successful, no right? You might come back and somebody else might have gotten some rabbits and they're much more successful and they share with you and there, you know, it goes back and forth, right? And so that's sort of one of the things that cements human societies is this idea that if you share resources with each other, everybody survives through periods where it's not going so well. Yeah. Like my ancestors were... Uh, during the hunter-gatherer, uh, like everyone would be off actually trying to get buffalo and whatnot, and my ancestors would be like, I have dick jokes. Does anyone want to <laughs> trade some of those for some rabbit or whatever? They were, they were very helpful, I, I imagine, in that division of labor. How, how, did, um, how do you think division of labor um, changed in humans moving from hunter-gatherer to agriculture? Um. That's that's sort of an interesting question. And also, how is it changing in modern society, too? Right. Modern yeah. Society. Maybe that's even more of an interesting question, right? Because Whatever we're you're most interested in talking about. Because now we're specialists. We're trying to make ourselves into specialists. Yeah. And we used to do a lot of different things. And now we do fewer things. That's really and fewer just things. a label that I give to my roommates so that they'll do things. Yeah. The me. dishes. Right. <laughs> but we all train for a specific job. Right? right. And 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 there's a parallel to social insect colonies that... In, in species that have very small colonies, individuals tend to do a lot of different things. But as the colony gets really big, as you get into these, these what we call superorganisms, like the leafcutter ants, for example, where you have millions and millions of, of workers, right, all working together for that colony, you find that individuals get very highly specialized on what they do. In fact, they even have um, physical changes that occur so that one individual has a really big head and it's a soldier and another one is tiny tiny and its job is to sit on the head of an ant that's bringing a leaf back so you get all all of these highly specialized individuals that don't really bounce back and forth into different tasks very well so as you go from our basic prim well primitive is not the right word but a small society that is a hunter-gatherer society you'll have specialization on hunting because it's a skill you want to learn and you have to cooperate as a team to do it gathering because you need to learn what is edible and what's not edible right but probably some guys are pretty good at building a shelter or something yeah and actually i just want to say that the dick joke person is also useful <laughs> because they sort of um balance you know the conflict and cooperation in in the group exchanging information and keeping things kind of you know copacetic right yeah. so you need somebody to sort of make to everybody yes exactly so you're highly important to that right. Right? but now it, we're huge right we have these huge cities of individuals that don't really know each other anymore 
um, who have jobs to, that they go to that are very, you know, narrow compared to all the things that are happening. Yeah, you study ants. I study ants, I know. It's, <laughs> that's pretty specialized. Yeah, try explaining and that to your mom. And they're like, okay, that's not specialized <laughs> enough. And now, now we need someone for that person to talk to who's done too many drugs so that regular people, they, they can put it in a, in a way that regular people will understand this, uh, how ants cooperate. And, uh, and, and that's my uh, That's your that's job, yeah. Yeah, and I don't just, I mean, I don't study ants. I study division of labor in a couple of species of ants, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're no <laughs> ant expert. You're just, just this very specific yeah, aspect right. of ants. Is you, you don't know the locomotion exactly of how exactly their arms work, maybe, as well as a different ant specialist. No, but I know a specialist who does know how their ants, <laughs> exactly. their arms work. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not sure how that would fit into a hunter-gatherer society. Yeah, yeah. What can you bring to the table? Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you, you see those ants? Well, I understand how their joints move around. Yeah, right. Like I can diagram your division of labor <laughs> and explain your network. <laughs> yeah, that might not work. But I mean, as you get these really huge societies of ants, bees, termites, right, you also get these massively beautiful structures. You get these... Uh, Things that individuals can't accomplish by themselves. If you look at like the comb of a honeybee colony, right, or a termite nest in you know the plains of Africa or Australia, so you do get these larger group level properties that a small society couldn't necessarily accomplish. And so, if you look out the window and you see you know the towers of the university and and, and you live you know in a city, you're also kind of looking at something that's similar, right? Mm. You have Massive numbers of individuals, all who specialize on things that sound, you know, at first glance or, or seem very esoteric or don't make sense. And then you put them all together and you get a city, which is amazing, right? That is amazing. I saw, um, I was visiting my parents' house and, um, and I was in the bathroom and I saw this group of ants hauling a peanut, like half of a peanut, which is, that's an impressive task. And, and they're lugging this thing and it's taking them a while and everything. And that's something you can't accomplish with just one individual. But then I'm sure you get down there, they probably have like a whole pyramid of uh, a, a peanut pyramid set up and they're putting like the queen in there as a tomb and, and they have a whole society. <laughs> well, or, there's or actually, it. just to go back to specialists, there's a specialist who works on how they move those peanuts. So how do how do small groups of ants actually move an object across the floor? Oh, you, you <laughs> yes. mean there's someone that studies yes, that? A- uh, oh, okay. I thought you meant there was an ant supervisor. No, that no. Like- but that's the interesting thing. There's never an ant supervisor, right? So that's one thing that's different between human, you know, business models and ants is that ants don't have a supervisor that says, oh, are you getting this job done well, right? The individuals are interacting with each other to get the job done. Hmm. So ants have gotten rid of middle management. Why ants can't we? have gotten rid of middle. Yes, they have. They've done a great <laughs> job of it. And, and they're uh, killing it. Yeah, they are. And, you know. As far as mass goes, there you, you throw ants on a scale and humans on a scale. and Yeah, ants are definitely. even. Yep. <laughs> I would say, though, that in order for humans to do that, we would have to get rid of pretty much all reproduction <laughs> except for one individual that is highly related to you that you really want to have produce a million babies and when we get to that point we could probably get rid of middle management too 
So we might be a little ways off. Yeah. Maybe when we make an alien colony and start over or something. <laughs> um, so y- you actually, in studying um, cooperation, you also uh, got into looking at basketball and how basketball teams cooperate. Yeah, I like basketball. So I... I'm not a big sports guy, <laughs> but I used to play basketball and everything. Ah. And so I at least understand um, a little. From what I remember, there's passing and dribbling and shooting. Yeah, that, <laughs> I think that about sums it up. <laughs> and, and fouls. And fouls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's lots of rules, yeah. things you can't do, and boundaries set up. So what did basketball tell you about how um how cooperation works um the i think the basketball team is another really fascinating case where you can't accomplish anything except for as a group right i mean you're not going to win because you have one good player michael Even, jordan yeah michael jordan had scotty pippen he did. He did. yeah Grant. yeah yeah so you know <laughs> it's usually a big three right there's usually three now individuals that do really most of the work but but it's not usually one they have to have backup right so um so but actually going back to the michael jordan example it it is an interesting dynamic where you have one player usually who's really good at something like shooting and they become a phenomenon and then you have the rest of the team and he still has to work with the rest of the team for them to win Right. Mm -hmm. So um, everybody has their role. There's a clear division of labor, how they how well they do perform their role and how well they interact with everybody else in the team generates a speed of of performance and an efficiency in their movements. Right. And in their passes that generate a generates a highly effective team. So, okay, I'm a I used to be a Suns fan. We're a little bit muddled up right now but one thing i always liked about the Suns was that you have this so you just ditched them they're just not doing as well the last couple seasons you're like no longer a fan let's not go there let's not go there (laughs) all right right. one of the things i liked about them was how you could have a a group of individuals none of them who are necessarily a superstar at something like shooting but they can pass the ball and coordinate so well that they can achieve more than what you would expect them to do by themselves so when they start doing that again i'm gonna be happy again all right (laughs) um but yeah so that's why i like basketball well actually i like basketball because i like basketball but uh, i what i used to go watch the suns a lot actually and i would have the cheap seats you know in the back of the stadium and i can't my eyesight's getting a little worse and i started to get to the point where i can't immediately identify individual players and one day they like shaved their heads and you you know you know to to unite the team and i sort of couldn't tell them apart very well that day there's a a bunch bunch of heads spots in the distance yeah and i study ant networks and all of a sudden i'm looking at the basketball team and i'm going there's a network (laughs) (laughs) and i started paying attention to the passes and that i kind of got into basketball networks from that basically Hmm. um so so when you say that and just to go back to ants again when when you say that some of these ants like you said 40 percent are just sitting around just mooching off of everybody else essentially um at any one time that doesn't mean that they're going to be sitting there all the time but there are actually a subset of them yeah that don't do very much so yeah 
So how like how interconnected are each of these individuals? Are they are they all just like each individual is just kind of connected to the queen and they're going on, or are there like teams sort of or that's a, actually a really interesting question because um, we're just starting to explore the network or or the colony as a network and it's if we if we think of a network it's like who connects to who else who talks to whom right mm-hmm. that would be sort of your question and if you asked yourself well who do I talk to right you might talk to people professionally but you probably most of the time talk to your friends and your family right and you so you have this kind of group of individuals that you're highly connected to and then other individuals that you connect to occasionally does that make sense yeah, yeah most uh, if you look at any vertebrate social group like squirrels or elephants or something like that, they're probably going to be pretty much the same. They're going to connect to individuals that are their sort of their friends, their associates, the, the ones that have their back basically, right? And then they're going to connect to other individuals occasionally, right? right. So, so how do individuals in an ant colony connect? Now, the ant colony is already a unit, right? Everybody's supposed to have everybody else's back. So at that point, you having a specific friendship, you know, with Sally or Jane or something like that is less important. And what you should be doing is interacting with other individuals based on what you need to get done. And that's what we've pretty much found as we've looked at the ant colony um, that individuals don't necessarily form long-term alliances with other individuals. They talk to individuals to collect information. So everyone is always antenating everybody else at some level. And then there's task groups. So if you're foraging, you're probably going to connect to other individuals that are foraging. But you're also probably going to connect to other individuals that are sorting the seeds. And you're probably going to talk to individuals who are taking care of the brood so that you get a lot of information across tasks and you get information within tasks, too. So it's different than a human friendship model. It's also different than a human business model because most business models, right, you're in this pod with other individuals that all work on the same thing. And that's who you talk to. And you don't actually talk to anybody else. Um, that's not the case in the ants. There's a lot of information flow across tasks, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not designed around the queen. They don't, most individuals don't talk to the queen most of the time. I mean, and you can imagine if you have a colony of a million individuals, right? The queen, and the queen's job is to lay eggs. So she only has to, well, she does two things. She lays eggs and then she sends out a pheromone that says, I'm still reproductive which is important for everybody to know. But uh, beyond it, those two that's things... That's like, it, it keeps them going? It does, it All keeps right, them going, still, yeah. And in honeybees, in honeybees, it keeps her alive because they'll replace her as soon as she's not reproductive. So, ah. yeah, so the queen pheromone's really important. But anyway, you get this idea that it's more of a distributed system and it's more of a distributed communication system. And is that as much to do with memory as anything? Like, uh, they, you were explaining they kind of don't have the memory um the memory uh, uh, to uh, kind of how how they use their memory uh, they have an external memory basically so they go and they're taking inventory each time um within the colony before they go out yeah and it depends on the colony a lot because if you go to colonies that are very small like for example we have this uh ant called harbignathus where they have uh, it, they're called primitively social because the queen 
actually isn't the only potential reproductive in the colony. They spend a lot of time in conflict with individuals fighting to become the new queen. That is a Game of Thrones right there. And so they, and as you remember, they have long memories, you know, in uh, Game of Thrones, they have long memories in that colony too. So they will remember individuals and they will form alliances and uh, back each other up. So you start to see some of those social elements in there, right? Actually, they're probably present early on. Do the good ants always get killed? first in that uh yeah yeah (laughs) probably right yeah but winter is coming even for even for the ant colony (laughs) so they they also have to function as a group why didn't we just use game of thrones reference for this whole podcast we could have actually yeah yeah um we're gonna go back we're gonna do it again sometime we'll do Um, next time i'm i'm through town we'll um we'll just do one hour long game of thrones breakdown um actually yeah. that would be amazing that would be funny wouldn't it <laughs> label the ants accordingly you know yeah, here's yeah. cersei look she's just taken down <laughs> well it would be uh, i mean you could actually just look at game of thrones and explain cooperate i mean if you can do it with basketball you could look at game of thrones and look at how cooperation works based on that's right those characters you well, absolutely can i mean um, i usually start talking about wild dog packs as soon as i talk about basketball and i think that's very relevant yeah right yeah so why not game of thrones and ants um so (laughs) i here's where i may be putting you on the spot um and i don't mean to did michael tell you that i do uh charity each week do you have a charity in mind that you want to do so i was uh so do you want like a general charity? Is this going just out? Just anything that you that you like. Yeah, usually just a general okay, yeah. charity that that I can put a link to. To I just encourage listeners to um, to donate to charity. Is all. I don't uh, I don't sell ads or anything like that on my podcast. All right. So, so given the theme, um, we've been talking about foraging a lot. We've been talking about food sharing, right? Yeah. So please donate to your local food bank. Ours is United Food Bank, and uh, let's be cooperative and share. That is wonderful. And um, I just took my mouth away from the microphone and I heard myself do it. Um, sorry, listeners. Um, so, so yes. Um, and then lastly, um, is there any of your, like, what, what's, what's the future of your research? What are you working on right now that you're the most excited about? Where, where are things going? We're working on two projects. Um, one is the scaling of division of labor, which we talked a little bit about. How is an ant colony a city, basically? How do they change in terms of specialization, organization, and communication as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Can we relate that also to human societies, which is interesting? The other thing I'm really interested in is something that's a little bit different, where we have um, some species of ants where the original queen, instead of starting the nest by herself as a single family group, forms a cooperative alliance with other unrelated queens. So now we have these cooperative systems where individuals have to get along and they're not relatives. And they're going to produce families of individuals that are not related to each other. And the ants seem to do this really well. So how come they do it really well and humans don't do it as well? This does go back to Game of Thrones because it's not a Game of Thrones. They actually have four queens that coexist together with their families in the nest. Hmm. Is it just because they have 
the instincts already kind of programmed in them to cooperate? No. The interesting thing is that they have to switch from being by themselves, which is the normal state for a queen when she starts a nest, yeah, yeah, to getting along with another queen. She has to tolerate her. She has to not try and kill her. She has to coordinate her egg production with this other queen. And then they have to coordinate with each other in constructing the nest. So they do all of these things that they don't normally have to do. And they do it with non-relatives. Hmm. That is very interesting. It is interesting. So it would be like you, it would almost be like your roommate relationship, but they're a little better at it. Yeah. Well, most, most, <laughs> most people is are <laughs> at cooperating than me and my roommates. Yeah. Um, well, maybe you've learned something today. <laughs> perhaps I have. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, showing me the lab and for, um, all of this wonderful information. This is very entertaining. Thank you for your time. And everyone go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and I'll have a link to Jennifer Fuel's um, research and, uh, and everything else you can find on there. And thank you for listening. Thanks, Jennifer. You're welcome. Do the dishes. <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Make sure and tune in next week where I will be uh, still at Arizona State University and talking about the evolution of the psychological underpinnings of stereotyping and how we react to outgroups and how different outgroups cause us to react differently. Real cool, interesting, very important stuff. Please make sure and tune in and thank you guys for listening. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. (laughs) 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs>